0: God is so good. Amen? Amen. This morning we're going to continue our series from Romans chapter 8. The greatest chapter in the Bible. And the more I've studied this for this series, the more I'm convinced that that's true. What a glorious place to be. Chapter 8 of Romans. Let's read read today's passage. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is such an amazing passage. And Paul begins talking about suffering. And that's not pleasant. None of us like suffering. And it's never been something that I've recognized as I've preached and taught. You know, oh. Let's talk about suffering. Yay! Pastor's talking about suffering. Woohoo! We just don't do that. Suffering is a negative, it's, it's just not something we want in our lives. But Paul begins there. And it's an extremely important concept. Suffering is important in Scripture. The Bible clearly teaches that when a person makes a stand for Christ, there will be opposition, affliction, And rejection by the world. There will be suffering. Suffering in the New Testament actually describes two things. It describes Christ's suffering to bring redemption. And it also describes the suffering of believers as they experience their commitment to Christ. Peter explains the importance of suffering this way. 1 Peter 5, 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Love that. Then there's James. And and James uses the idea of trials to help us understand the believer's life of suffering. And and there's a love-hate relationship that I have with James Because there's times when when I just go, I know that's inspired word of God, but I don't like it. And this is one of those places. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'm sorry, I have a hard time counting it all joy when I suffer. But that's the exhortation from Scripture. And we can add to that if we, if we understand what the Bible wants us to understand about suffering. Sometimes I think we just think of everything we go through life as suffering, but sometimes we make that suffering our own because of our own sin. The suffering that's beneficial is the suffering when we make a stand for Christ, when we declare the gospel, when we live for Jesus and we suffer. The other aspect of suffering that we need to remember is that people who do not follow Christ have no hope in their suffering. No matter what the reason for their suffering, the unbelievers, they do not suffer for the sake of Christ and they have no hope. The unbeliever only lives for this life and has no ability to look forward to the glorious resolution to pain, suffering, and wrongs. Their suffering has no divine purpose and it produces no eternal rewards. In contrast to that, those who follow Christ have enormous hope, not just that their afflictions are going to come to an end, but that those afflictions actually bring eternal glory to Christ and rewards to the believer. Your suffering for Christ glorifies Him. That's hard for us. The believer's suffering comes from the actions of other people. If you're you're suffering because you're your witness for Christ and people persecute you because you're witnessing the truth about Christ... Your suffering's coming from other people. But our glory, believer's glory, comes from God. Suffering in this life is short. No matter what the suffering, it's short. The glory, the glory that we have is forever. Our suffering in this life is trivial compared to the limitless glory of eternity. We suffer here in our corrupt, decaying bodies But the glory of believers will be perfect and imperishable. In this passage from Romans 8, Paul doesn't use suffering as a negative. That's where where we usually go. Suffering is a negative. Paul doesn't use it that way. He uses suffering to make the point of how magnificent the believer's hope is in the future. Suffering for for Christ's sake enables believers to appreciate what Christ endured to purchase our lives from the wrath of God and to realize the hope that we have in the future. Do you ever go into suffering thinking, I'm suffering, but I'm looking forward? We need to work on that. And I really wonder, I really wonder if we spend nearly enough time intellectually and spiritually processing the glory of our future in heaven. We are so inundated by the things in this world. We don't spend near enough time with that idea and and truth of the scriptures that teach us about what's coming, the glory. And this is where Paul takes us in chapter 8. He begins verse 19. He says, anxious longing. And that term, anxious longing, it's a term that literally means watching with great expectations. This great expectation or watching with exceptional anticipation is also the longing of creation. We've all experienced that longing, that expectation that it's going to happen. Paul starts adding this idea of creation to this. And at first glance, that kind of seems odd. We need to think this through. All of creation is looking forward to what God is doing. All of creation is waiting and watching as men and women, boys and girls, come to Christ and worship God and celebrate Him. The other part of this is I don't think that we realize... The extraordinary extent of sin. I don't think we really have put that together well. When Adam and Eve made their cataclysmic choice to rebel against God and sin entered the garden, the effect was not just on Adam and Eve and their offspring. I think we spend way too much of our thinking on that. That's obvious. Adam and Eve sinned. It affected them, and it affected their children, all of us. But that's not the end of the uh, problem. Because when they sinned, every detail of creation was affected. Every detail. If you think for one moment your personal sin has no effect on others and the world around you, you are seriously mistaken. You may not think of your sin as any big deal. But this statement that Paul makes, this corruption, is, it, it, this, this whole idea is a powerful statement about the devastating reality of sin. Adam sinned and everything became corrupt. Your sin, your sin nature was passed down from Adam. And when you sin, you are restating the destructive judgment of God's holiness, the demands of his holiness. Every time you sin, whether you recognize the consequences or not, you are giving an example of God's holiness And His holiness demands judgment. When Adam and Eve sinned, everything was broken. All of creation is broken. As my grandfather used to say, it's busted. All of creation is busted. We tend to think of our sin in overly simplistic ways, drunkenness, lust, cursing, stealing, homosexuality, lying. We, we have our lists, that's a sin, and we prioritize and categorize those lists. We like to sit, think of some of those sins worse than others, but the reality that's taught by the Word of God is that all sin alienates human beings from God. It was the rebelliousness of Adam and Eve that set this in motion. They sinned. Everything's busted. God judged their sin. They were responsible for their choices. So are we. When Adam and Eve made that cataclysmic decision to rebel... It affected every molecule, every subatomic particle of creation, every detail, everything was affected. It's busted. Now this is hard. This is really hard, because we, we look out at creation and, and, and we just it is amazing. We look at God's creation and we are amazed at the complexity and the design and the detail. Only God could do what we see around us, only He could create such an amazing universe. And this passage gives us such deep theological help and practical help because it helps us with practical answers to the many problems that we endure. It starts with this same concept it 's all busted. My grandfather would do that and, and you know, I remember grandma brought him something and he goes, well, it's busted. And then his next response was, I'll fix it. A lot of guys are like that. It's busted. I'll fix it. I'll figure it out. I remember my grandfather doing that, you know. Well, one afternoon it was the cash register in the store. And he went over and he messed with it. And he goes, well, dotty." There's some other words that I can't use in church, but it's busted. I'll fix it. Creation is busted, but God fixed it through Christ. This whole idea of, of creation being broken, all creation was subject to futility. God did that, it's His judgment. Do you remember Genesis 3, beginning in verse 17? And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field." By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. What's God saying? You sinned. Judgment comes because of sin. Everything is corrupt because of sin. The result of sin. Cancer, COVID, death diabetes, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, strokes, mental and physical disabilities, murder, crime, addictions, dementia, arthritis, decay, death, pain, suffering, and it goes on and on and on. Busted, but God fixed it. There's hope. Romans eight twenty two. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. pains of childbirth I, I was there for all five of ours on one of them she nearly strangled me, but <laughs> why do our women endure that pain for the glory of that child and that's just a a microscopic similarity to this whole idea of the glory of God is what we're waiting for. We're waiting for something so great, so amazing. In verse 23, Paul uses the term groan, and this term means literally to sigh together. And not only that, but to sigh together with expectation of what's coming. It isn't just that you groan and you just say, oh, everything's rotten. The believer's going, yeah, everything's rotten, but God's got the glory coming. There's an expectation of what is perfect coming, perfect revelation. And one of the aspects that Paul gives us here is this perfect revelation of our adoption and the perfect condition of our lives as they are connected to God's glory. That's marvelous. All creation is waiting for the perfect, complete revelation of God's glory. This glory, this this is glorious. This, This is God's glory. This is amazing. And we should wake up from our sleep. We're in this sleepy, kind of mopey, you know, lazy state and be energized to boldly proclaim Christ and live for Him. Because we have this glory living in us, and we have this in the future. This is what it's all about. All creation is waiting to see the glory of God. Now, that concept, glory of God, that's hard. I've told a couple of people after the first service that one of the problems with this message is finding language human language to describe what I sense in my spirit when it comes to the glory of God. And I think all of the writers of the New Testament struggled with that. How do you put into words the glory of God? And I, I also, as I, as I was working with this this week, we, we don't think about this very well. And as I was going through that, I was reminded about going to Roosevelt Field in Longmont. That was the big city park when Emily and I were growing up in Longmont. And it's like right in the center of town, Roosevelt Field. And you'd go there on the 4th of July, and I remember going there as a, as a boy, and we'd take our blanket, and all seven of us would be on the blanket, and there'd be families here and there, and everybody's on their blanket, and everybody's waiting. There's this expectation this anticipation, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and then boom, it goes off, and it goes in the air, and there's another, boom, and there's lights and sparkles all over everywhere, everybody's looking into the sky, and they all have the same words, ooh, ah, right? There's another boom, and there's glorious colors and sparkling lights. Boom, 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 and the fireworks go off, and and people become mesmerized by the sounds and the lights. Now, on a tiny basis, this is what I get from this passage. We're looking forward to the greatest masterpiece of glory ever shown. This is the greatest and we are an intricate part of this glory and we're part of this glory because we have accepted the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ we have been adopted and that glory includes us being completely in a final sense glorified in his presence adopted in our new bodies we're in in the middle of this glorious thing. I want you to catch this. I want you to, I want you to cheer for this. Or somebody in the first service I said, I, I thought maybe I should stand up. I said, why didn't you? And said, oh, come on. You good Baptists. We need to cheer for this. We need to live for this. Pursue this. We are talking about the greatest, glorious show of glory ever in any way, shape, or form. Nothing surpasses this. Let me continue a little bit with this idea of of fireworks because it really, maybe it's just for me, but maybe you'll catch this. So in 1976, the United States of America was celebrating its bicentennial. Some of us remember that. And some in the room didn't exist yet. So they have to believe us and trust us. I happened to be with a group of college students, and we were on a road trip to California. And on that particular day, we were in Disneyland. Disneyland, 4th of July, 1976. Whoa! Now, I have a a unique relationship with Disneyland because my grandmother actually had a shop in Disneyland. So there's a connection here. And I had seen the fireworks at Disneyland, you know, up over the castle and all that. I'd seen the show before. It's magnificent. If you've been there, you know what I mean. It, it's, it really is pretty cool. But July 4th, 1976, that was incredible. We're celebrating the bicentennial and the fireworks were the biggest, most complex, longest, most intense that I have ever seen. Oh my. I've seen fireworks in the mountains, over lakes, I've seen fireworks in in different countries. I, it's fireworks. Nothing compares in my mind, to what I saw on July 4th, 1976. Oh my, boom, 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 continuously. Booms and lights everywhere and then the patterns and all of that going off. And everybody just standing there and just, there there was hardly even any oohs and ahs because everybody's just in shock. Whoa! Oh my goodness. We were frozen in place. It is and was truly indescribable. And even with a fireworks display like that, it doesn't come minutely close enough to compare to what God has prepared for us. No fireworks will come close to what God has. Paul makes it clear all creation is agonizing over the wait for the redemption of creation. For all of creation, for everything to be satisfied, for everything to be made right. Now, I don't know how creation watches. Holy Spirit wrote that, so that's what we have to do, right? And one of the things that all creation is doing is watching people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Christ. And Paul also makes it clear that all creation is looking forward to the greatest display of glory possible, the glory of God. The entire created universe that we understand cannot even come close in comparison to the glory of God. Our finite minds cannot comprehend in this life the extent, magnificence, perfection, splendor, and eternal lavishness and majesty of God's coming glory. And you're a part of that. And here we sit calmly. Paul says in verse 18, the glory that is to be revealed in us. This incredible, indescribable glory revealed in you, a believer. In verse 22, groanings of childbirth. We're waiting for this. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting for this amazing thing to happen. No, the groanings in this passage are not negative, they're positive, pointing us to the level of expectation that we should be living with. This is how we should live every day. God is on his throne. He knows everything possible that there is to be known. He knows every detail about every disease, every sickness, every sin, every negative thing, and he has has done what? He's made it right. He is sovereignly in control. God's glory revealed to all of creation. This is glory. Nothing gets better. So here we sit. And to go back to that fireworks metaphor. The greatest fireworks show you've ever seen. It's going off. All of that stuff's going off. And you're, you know, the sky is filled with all of those shells bursting and, and all of that's going on. And you're playing with matches. Everything's going off overhead. There's this great expectation, this wonderful thing. The greatest show is coming. It's coming and we've got that expectation and some of that glory is already here because you've come to Christ and we're more impressed with matches. Creation benefits. All of creation benefits. It was cursed. It's decaying. It's busted. But there will be a new heaven and earth. That's what God wants us to grasp. Verse 23 tells us, wait eagerly for adoption. Now, we've got to pause here for just a second because he's saying, we're waiting eagerly for adoption, but didn't he, you know, in in one of our previous messages we talked about, we're we're adopted. That's already done. Verses 14 and 16, chapter 8, Paul tells us, we've been adopted. Past tense, if you're a believer, you are adopted. So why does he say we're waiting for that? We've not received our inheritance. Paul connects our inheritance to the redemption of our bodies. I don't know about you, but my body still is suffering under the curse. And some days it's a lot harder than others. But I'm adopted. Believers are the children of God. We cry, Abba, Father! The adoption has been made official. It cannot be taken away or changed. But we've not received the inheritance. There's a time for that. So right now we're waiting. That's the groaning. That's the the groaning of childbirth. What are we waiting for? As you go through this life, what are you waiting for? Death? Death? It's going to come. You don't even have to wait for it. You know good and well that at some point, what are you waiting for? What what are we groaning for? What is our longing for? If we're believers, it needs to be the glory of God, the incredible, eternal glory of God. That's what we're waiting for. This should impact how we live every day. I like what Peter writes. In 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning of verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a, a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which... The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. It's all busted. And what Peter is saying, it's all going to burn. It's all going to be done away with. The point in time, Christ will come and all the physical universe as we understand it will be destroyed with intense heat and everything will burn. It's going to be nuked. It comes to an end but it's replaced. Because if you go on to verse 13 in, in 2 Peter 3, he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you catch that? A new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. There's no sin. There's no curse. The Bible's full of this. There's some amazing places. Revelation 20, 21, and 22, three chapters filled with this whole idea that tells us that there's this new creation coming. If this creation is so amazing to us, think about what that glorious new creation is going to be like. And if that doesn't goose pimple you, you may be dead. I happen to really love Revelation chapter 22, 1 through 5. For me, it helps put this into some understanding for my finite mind. 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of god and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night and excuse me and night will be no more they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The coming glory is so magnificent. There's no need for the sun or the moon or lamps. The glory of God is so great and so marvelous. That's eternal. So I wonder, are we waiting? Are we having that groaning, that sighing together, looking forward with great expectation to the the future of believers. It's secure. It's going to come. Are we looking for it? Is that how we live? This glorious, eternal display of the glory of God will come. And we're a part of it. So this morning, I have a challenge, and the challenge is rise to your feet and live your life with the expectation of the fabulous, indescribable glory of God as the adopted sons and daughters of God. You, if you're here as a believer, you are a part of that glory. Live that way everywhere you go. I had visions of preaching this. I challenge you, rise to your feet. And watching this people go, yay! We have to be careful of doing that, don't we? Our expectation is for the greatest, most glorious thing that will ever occur, and that's seeing for the glory that you've shown to us already through your Son. I thank you for your word and the revelation that your word has given us about who you are and what you're doing. Oh, Father, help us to live for your glory. Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd stir us up, that we would be not able to contain the expectation of the glory of God. Remind us as we live out our daily lives that no matter what occurs, we have been adopted and we are a part of the most glorious thing that is ever going to occur. Help us. Strengthen us and guide us to be like all of creation. Longing for looking forward to, groaning with great expectation for the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the glorious kingdom that comes with Him. In Christ's name, amen.